Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. It is good to see you here this morning. And it is great to see you singing about the goodness and the greatness of our God because He is. He is good and great in incredible, incredible ways. And, um, and he does miraculous things still. Um, Pat, I can't not. Uh, if you read in the paper or saw on the news yesterday about a woman who was attacked by an alligator at Cross this weekend... She's sitting over there. Yeah, praise God. Praise God. She has no broken bones, no organ damage, no significant tendon damage or muscle damage. She's badly bruised. She would probably say very badly bruised and sore. But God delivered her. She has bite marks on her shoulder and her side. It was not a tiny little baby alligator. Tom, her husband, who had to jump in and fight the thing with get his wife back, will tell you, I think his words to me were, if it was an inch, it's as tall as me, and and Tom's six foot plus. And so God, God delivered in a miraculous way, and we are so grateful to our God. Just so grateful this day. And that's just just one more reminder of that. And so that, that God, that great, great God is worthy of our praise. And his son that he sent that we could know of his greatness is worthy of our following. And so we want to do that today. And we do that by stepping into his word and falling more deeply in love with him out of his word. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18 this day. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably one in the seat in front of you, but we're going to be in Matthew uh, chapter 18 today. And I, I want you to see with me just the beauty of, of, of God's plan and, and, and his kingdom, what life is supposed to be about, because he's going to use a little child to demonstrate the simplicity and beauty of his kingdom. And I love stories about little kids. Uh, they just warm my heart because they can say the most incredibly funny things and at the same time be incredibly profound. I heard a story this week about a precocious preschooler who had gotten sick and had to go to see his doctor, and his doctor was one of those doctors, you know, um, a pediatrician who tried to not just do a checkup, but, you know, maybe try to make things a, a, a little fun. And so he, he's with this little precocious boy, and the doctor wanted to cheer him up, and so he takes that little scope and looks into his ear, and he says, oh my, is that Mickey Mouse in there? Well, the precocious little preschooler is thinking to himself, this guy needs to get a life. What is wrong with this man? He's so silly. So then the doctor takes the tongue depressor and says, open wide. Oh, my, is that Donald Duck I see down in there? Kid doesn't crack a smile. He doesn't move. He just kind of ignores the doctor. So then the doctor takes the stethoscope and he sticks it on the little boy's heart and he listens for a moment. And he says, is that Barney I hear running around in there? And the little boy had all he could take. He could not take any more. And he looked that doctor in the eye and said, doctor, that is not Barney. That is Jesus in my heart. Barney is on my underwear. profound and beautiful just the the lives of of little kids and we're going to see jesus take 
a, a little boy, to describe his kingdom, a little child, the Bible, the Bible tells us. So if you have your Bibles in Matthew chapter 18, I'm going to ask you to turn there. We're going to start in verse 1 this morning. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. This is the word of the Lord, and I pray that you will grab hold of that. You know, we talk about uh, just the beauty of God's word around here. We are devoted to, to letting it be the sole authority in our lives. And um, one of the things that I try to point out when I can is when there are parallel passages. So uh, some of the other gospel writers, some of you know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they report a lot of the same stories. They, they give different details from one another at times, and, and you'll find that true in the parallel passages uh, on, on this encounter. So if you want to look there you know, later in, in Mark 9 and Luke 9, uh, this same encounter is uh, is written about by those two gospel writers. Now, what I want us to do is look at this question for a minute because that's we're in this series where we are looking at the questions that real life people asked Jesus, real life questions when he was walking uh, among us. And, and this question was that, w- that was actually asked is, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Now, there was nothing really wrong with the question, but that was not the question they were really asking. There was a question under that question, and Jesus knew it. The question under the question was this, which one of us is the greatest in in the kingdom of God? And so here's what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to give them a definition of what God's reality is for what greatness looks like among his people in his kingdom, in the kingdom of God. So this is today's big idea. The big idea from the passage that I see it is kingdom greatness equals childlike humility. Kingdom greatness equals childlike humility. Now, I'll go ahead and confess that this is still an area that your pastor needs to grow in. I need to grow in in humility. And I believe most of us have space for that, that all of us actually do. And though I need work on that, I am not coming to you today to ask you to pray that I might have more humility. Because the Bible says that the effective prayers of God's righteous people accomplishes much. And I don't need to be humiliated this week. And if you're thinking, well, I need to pray, you know, for somebody to be humbled, pray for yourself. Here's the deal. If you think that you need to be praying for somebody else to have humility, more than likely you need it worse than they do. So pray. You ask God to bring humility into your life. See, one of the realities that I've discovered uh, about humility is that it gets born in our lives in the places we don't see it coming. We can't, we don't predict it. Truth about humility is, and one of the reasons why we don't work towards it is because when everything's going pretty good, everything's going pretty well, you know, things are pretty much falling into place like we like them. Humility doesn't come naturally. It's when we fall in a hole. It's when everything begins to fall apart. That's where humility really gets birth. And that's why in our culture it's such a rare commodity because so many people in our culture are trying so hard to make it look like that everything is just perfect and wonderful when they're falling apart secretly and privately. But they, they, they don't want to walk in humility. But this is how Jesus defines true greatness. That it will only be found in humility. And so I want us to kind of unpack what that looks like for just a minute. In verse 1 of Matthew 18, look at what Jesus said. The disciples came to him saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, one of the reasons I love the disciples is because they remind me so much of me. You know, you can, I think all of us can find ourselves somewhere being portrayed in the lives, the, the silly questions, you know, the, the crazy ideas that these guys have floating uh, around in their head. 
And like us, they were trying so hard to, you know, keep their eye on the ball, to stay, to stay focused on, on following Jesus and, and, and those kinds of things. But they got so easily sidetracked. Just like me. And just like you. We get so, so easily sidetracked. Let me show you how easily they got sidetracked. Mark records, I told you the same encounter in Mark chapter 9. If you go to Mark chapter 9 and read about the event just before this teaching of Jesus in Mark 9, uh, verse 30, you read this. It said, leaving that region, they traveled through Galilee. This is Jesus and his disciples. Jesus didn't want anyone to know uh, he was there, for he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. They still needed some teaching. And he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed but three days later, he will rise from the dead. Now, remember, they're walking along. Jesus is teaching them this. Verse 32. They didn't understand what he was saying, however. They were afraid to ask him what it meant. Verse 33. After they arrived in Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked the disciples, What were you discussing out on the road? But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Now, now capture this. Jesus had just told them, I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of enemies. And I'm going to suffer and die. They're walking along. Jesus is telling them this. Jesus kind of gets done with this. And they start saying, hmm. If Jesus is going to die, I wonder who's going to be the new CEO of this great movement. They, they, you could, they start thinking, who's going to be the greatest? Who, who is going to now, you know, take the hill? Who's everybody going to look up to? Luke records these words about Jesus in the moment, that moment. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. It's very interesting to me that Jesus is answering this great question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven in the midst of that context? Jesus knew it was the wrong question. Jesus knew what was going on in their hearts. It was the wrong, it, it, maybe the question itself wasn't so wrong, but the motivation underneath the question was where the trouble was. Where the trouble was. See, they were asking Jesus, what is, what is greatness going to look like in your kingdom? But for them, it was all about position, jockeying for position. And so what does Jesus teach us in this moment with, with this child? See, if we truly want to pursue greatness in the kingdom of God, if we, if we want our heavenly Father to think that we're pursuing life with him in a great way, the first thing that we need to do is we've got to jettison jockeying we got to get rid of this competitive spirit thing that's going on. See, Peter, James, John, Nathaniel, you know, Thomas, all, all the disciples, they, all of them had this going on. They were all trying to jockey for this, this position. They wanted to make sure that the, the things they did pushed them up the rung, you know, one rung higher than the other guys so that they, they'd have to look up to them. They all wanted that. And here's what happens when you begin to compete for positions you miss out on the purposes of god when you begin competing for this position you miss the purposes of the kingdom of god see friends who lands where that's in god's hands our our call is just to be faithful where god has put us in this moment at, at, at this time and Jesus, please hear me, Jesus isn't advocating laziness. He's, he's not doing that. He's not advocating a lack of drive. What he is advocating is that we make sure that wherever we are, whatever we're facing, we're trusting in the Lord. We're putting our hope in him. So the disciples came close to asking the right question, but with the wrong motivation. And our culture is just filled with this, this jockeying for position. How many of you have personally ever felt that somebody undermined you in the workplace in order to get ahead? 
Or if, if not you personally, you've seen it happen to somebody else in the workplace. Somebody kind of undermined them so that they could get a step up. Seriously, raise your hand if you've ever seen that played out anywhere. Okay? Hands are raised all over. It's, it's just part of, uh, of our culture. You know, we, we are almost bred with this spirit of competi- competition. Our, our, our culture invests so much in this. So at times they're, they're unethical and they lack integrity just to take the next step up. Our culture says do whatever you got to do to get wherever you got to get so that you can think of yourself as great. Maybe in your own eyes or the eyes of others. And friends, Jesus warns against this. Jesus says this is not the way in God's kingdom. See, the main error that the disciples are making here is they they were now in competition with each other. So where does that mindset come from? How do we we get it to it in the first place? Well, if you fast forward just a couple of chapters out of Matthew 18 over to Matthew 20, there's something interesting that that is recorded there. Uh, Follow with me, uh, Matthew 20, verse 20. Then the mother of James and John, these are two of the disciples, the sons of Zebedee, so this is Mrs. Zebedee, okay? She brings her boys to Jesus and respectfully, I love that, she respectfully, she respectfully asked a favor. Jesus says, what what is your request? And she replied, in your kingdom, will you let my two sons sit on the thrones next to yours? Can one of my, my boys have your left side and one of my boys have your right side? You know, it, it's, it, it's just crazy. Here's, here's where this often begins. Our kids catch this from us. Our kids get this pursuit, this competitive, this, this sense of I got to get ahead, sometimes from, from their parents. And Jesus, when he's dealing with Mrs. Zebedee, basically, if you go read it, tells her the same thing. You got to jettison this jockeying stuff. You got to get rid of this competitive spirit. Because when you see that as the thing you're fighting, you're fighting the wrong battle. You're fighting the completely wrong battle. See, because within the family of God, life is supposed to be different. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 24, he says, God has so composed the body that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. That's God's plan. But this competitive Spirit, this thing shows up everywhere. It shows up in places of work. It shows up in the classroom. It shows up, it shows up in Christian marriages. Satan loves it when this shows up in Christian marriages. See, Christian marriage is supposed to be a picture to the world of what Jesus' relationship with his church is like self-sacrificing it's supposed to display the beauty and and faithfulness of jesus but when marriage gets dissolved and attacked and breaks down that picture gets murky and muddy and the world has a harder time seeing the beauty of jesus and so what we find in 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 marriage even in christ in, in christian marriages is satan starts to get in there and he he'll make one partner say one spouse say you know in their heads thinking well, they're not looking out for me. And they started, and I'm not going to look out for them. And so this battle lines begin to be drawn, and they start fighting among themselves, jockeying for position. And friends, there is nothing worse than teammates fighting one another. We know this, just, you know, and participating in, in sports, that a team that's divided in the locker room never is going to win out on the field. And it's true in marriage. We'll never win out in in the world if we allow Satan to divide us that way. If what we're going to do is jockey for some kind of position of authority in marriage and we're infighting all these times. The only person that wins is Satan and, and his kingdom of darkness. Because God's grace brings people together. And Satan divides and destroys that's his job description. In John 10, 10, that's what the Bible tells us, that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's, that's who he is. That's, that's what he does. And because we live in this broken world, we've all experienced it. We, we've, all, we've all felt this. We've all given into it in some way. I remember not long ago reading a testimony 
that a woman had given. They had rec- uh, transcribed it. And um, she had, uh, she and another woman in their church had become friends, close friends and prayer partners because they were praying for the same thing. That's how they got to know each other. They were both praying to be able to have children. They, they, they were unable to have children. And they became prayer partners, and they started praying together. Well, after about two years of, of praying together, one of them got pregnant. And, you know, was obviously filled with joy. And so on, in a midweek prayer service, uh, one of the things the pastor in that church did was, you know, always ask, you know, is there anything that you, um, you want to praise God for that he's, you've seen him do? And this woman, now with child, you know, stood and said, I just want to thank God. I've prayed for years, and, and, and now, you know, we're going to have a baby. Well, her friend, who was also in that prayer meeting, burst into tears and ran out the church. And later that night, her, her, her friend, this one with child, called her, and she wouldn't pick up. She called her the next several days, and she wouldn't pick up. Finally, about, about a week later, this friend shows up on her doorstep and knocks on the door, and this woman that was with child opens, opens the door and sees her friend there, and her friend just grabs her and hugs her and says, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm so sorry that what the Lord's revealed to me is that I ended up having a spirit of competition with you. And because of that, I could not, I couldn't rejoice with you. I couldn't, I couldn't experience joy in the Lord for answering our prayers for you. Friends, that's a reality. Is if, if, you, if you find yourself sucked into a spirit of competition, spirit of one-upmanship in, in any way, spirit of comparing that I, I didn't get what, what, what somebody else got, you're, you're going to lose and miss the opportunity to experience joy in the kingdom of God now. You, you won't be able to to rejoice because that's what the spirit of competition does. It, it erodes that. It causes us to miss out on great joy in the Lord in the here and now because we'll never rejoice with somebody that we see ourselves in some kind of competition. And Jesus says, I have something better for you, something better for his people. Reminds me of what Paul said to the church in, in Corinthians about this. Second Corinthians chapter 10 Paul writes, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with someone who commended themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're not wise. Did did you get that? I know that's a lot of themselves kind of thing. But when you start measuring yourself, you know, you start measuring yourself against others or even against your perceived understanding of what greatness would look like for you. The Bible says it is not wise because God has different plans. So this competition thing within the body of Christ, it undermines the beauty of fellowship in the body. This this can happen horribly even as churches try to compare themselves to other churches, pastors to other. we We have to jettison this jockeying for position, looking at what the world says is great. So that the disciples have come. With this question, and Jesus is getting into the, the heart of the matter about, of, about what is actually real to God. So in verses 2 and 3, Jesus calls this child to himself, and it says, He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is saying is, friends, instead of competing You need to be converted. If you really want to experience greatness in the kingdom of God, then you need to do this second thing that Jesus is pointing out here. We need to make the turn. We physically need to make a turn. Emotionally, spiritually, we need to make a turn. We need to turn away from what the world defines as greatness and turn to what God, through Jesus, defines as greatness. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 3, I want you to see this in two different translations, two other translations. In New American Standard, it says, truly I say to you, unless you are converted, Um, NIV translates it, I tell you the truth, unless you change, unless you change directions, this word is very similar to the New Testament word repent. 
which is an idea that's central to the entire message that Jesus came proclaiming. If you go back to the beginning of Jesus's uh, preaching ministry, Matthew records it in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, make this turn, be converted, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said that at the beginning of his ministry, and Jesus is continuing to teach that if you want life in the kingdom, there is this continual conversion that needs to be going on, this continual turning to the Lord that needs to happen. It's the whole message of the Bible. We see this. The world works a certain way. God wants you to turn from that and turn to a new way of living. But do you know what the big problem with this is? It's the turning part. It's the turning part. That's the hard part. Jesus is going to, Jesus is not going to turn you. Jesus is going to prompt you and me to turn, but we've got to do the turning. That's what that's where it's difficult. You and I have to choose to do the turning. And one of the things I find that because we have just been kind of swallowed by the culture, even as the church, we're in this competitive society, we're almost Seems like we're, we're bred for this. And Jesus says, listen, if you want to experience life in all its fullness and greatness in the kingdom of God, you got to turn. Your life has to become a lifestyle of, of turning away from the world. you got to change the script just completely. The, the world says, dog eat dog. you got to one-up somebody to get ahead. And Jesus says, no. I want you to turn away from that completely. I want you to be like one of these littlest of children, one of these littlest of kids. Again, Jesus is getting at the heart of the matter here. He wants us to see this. Remember, the question is, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus says, the answer is, take a really hard look at this little child. Just look at at, at this little child. And what Jesus is pointing to is Jesus is putting on display the total reversal of the human scales, how we weigh things, the total reversal of this world's system. See, a little child in that day had had zero importance. They had no real rights. They weren't really thought of as value-adding. Their opinions didn't matter. And oftentimes in our day, we don't think of little children's opinions as mattering. when was the last time your family had to make a really, you know, significant decision? Maybe like, let's say, purchasing a car, a new car. How many of you went to your three-year-old and said, now tell me, dear, what are your thoughts on this matter? You know, we, we, we just, we, we don't do that. Kathy um, introduced me to a brand new game show that has come on TV um, do y'all know who Kelly Ripa is? Ke- Kelly Ripa, um, she's, she's the, the host of this new game show called Generation Gap. It's, it's kind of cute. Um, the, one that the, the, the one we saw this past week, it was these grandparents with their teenage granddaughter or grandson. They were on teams against another grandparent. Teenage, and, and they're asked questions about the other's generation. And they have to try to answer those questions. Well, when they, they get to the end of the game, the, the family that wins, they move on to, um, you know, the super duper round or whatever they call it, the thing. And so they're there. And each of these families had had to bring one of the youngest children in their extended family. And so the winning family had this four-year-old that they had brought with them. And here's, here's how that last round is played. The only person that plays it is the four-year-old. The rest of the family cannot talk. They can't say anything. They can't instruct them. It's all up to the four-year-old. And here's what, you know, they had won money, you know, throughout the thing. But here's what the, 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 this is the grand prize moment. And so they pull back the curtain, and there's a brand new uh, 2022 Volvo, all bells and whistles, on this side. And on this side of, of that stage, there is a, uh, a miniature... Uh, Paw Patrol video game, you know, that a little kid could stand up to. All the lights on and all the voices coming out of it. And so Kelly bends down and talks to this little four-year-old for a minute and says, 
which one of these do you want? That family did not go home with a new Volvo. They did not. See, little children see the world so differently than we do. So very, very differently. Unencumbered by those kinds of things that we think of that, you know, make us great. And Jesus, understanding that, set this little child in, in, in front of them. Because he hadn't been turned by the ways of the world yet. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, you've got to turn back. You've got to turn, turn away from these systems because they've corrupted your thinking. They've corrupted your actions. You know, the, the apostle Peter would eventually get this by the power of the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, it would become one of the central messages that Peter and the other apostles will proclaim. And we see this in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Peter says, repent. Repent, turn. Turn, turn, turn away, turn back. He goes on here, it says, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's one of the reasons right there in Acts 2 that we insist on believers' baptism here to be a member of River Bluff Church. Because the Bible tells us to do that, to repent and then and to be baptized. Because baptism is a picture. That going under the water is symbolically saying that the reality that has taken place in me, that my old life is dying with Jesus. And it's being buried like Jesus was buried in the tomb. And then when you come up out of the water, you're saying, I, I'm being raised to new life in Christ because of Jesus. And the reason that's so important is because Jesus is asking every one of us to live by a different spirit. Not the spirit of the world, but by the prayer, by, by the power and empowering of the Holy Spirit who comes to live in us. The world says it's all about the competition. The spirit of the world says that. Don't ever back down. The spirit of Jesus tells us something totally different. It says no to that. You want to have eternal life, real life? Greatness in the kingdom of God, you need to die to self, Jesus says, so that I can resurrect you to, to new life. I can give you a whole new way of looking at the world, different from the systems of this world that have corrupted us, so that you're no longer thinking it's going to all be about success here, or, or, or all about wealth here, or, you know, am I going to be the best looking in the room, or, you know, am I going to get everything I want, or, or, or whatever, Jesus says it's going to be about a re-scripting of the way that we live. That's why Jesus, when, when he preached the greatest sermon ever preached back in Matthew chapter 5, he starts his, his message with these words, verse 3, Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's who's going to find the kingdom of heaven. He says, you will know that you have stepped into the kingdom of heaven when you walk away from that pursuit of pride. That pursuit of position, that spirit of competition, thinking that that will give you purpose in life. So Jesus has called this little child, he's put it in the midst of them, said, unless you turn, uh, uh, unless you convert and become like this child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Then in verse 4, Jesus says this, whoever humbles himself like this child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus is saying here, I believe, is that in order for us to live in the greatness of the kingdom of God, we've got to learn from the little children that God puts in our lives. Now, you know, we talked earlier about there's a difference between childishness and childlikeness. You know, childishness is, you know, picking boogers in public and pulling your gum out and getting it stuck in your hair. That's childishness. Child, childlikeness is humility. It's, it's the kind of humility that doesn't fight against its own identity or its own position. Remember, this is a little child being spoken of here. They're not striving to be something that they are not. Little kids, little kids don't do that. Again, back to the greatest sermon ever preached, uh, the, the third sentence basically in that sermon he talked about the poor in spirit. The third sentence is about humility. God says, God blesses those who are humble, 
for they shall inherit the whole earth. One of the beauties about a little toddler is how amazed they are at discovering something new in the world. And Jesus is saying, through that kind of humility, you will see beauty in the kingdom of God that you will not see until you humble yourself like this. That's why the, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 11, hundreds of years before this moment of Jesus' teaching, tells us that there's going to come a day when a child will lead them. And Jesus sets a child in their midst and points to what kingdom life can be like. And it's humbling yourself like a little child, not trying to be something that you're, you're not. It's okay to be who God created you to be. They're content in their own skin. Are we? Are we content to be who God has made us? The Apostle Paul, even though before being Paul, his name was Saul, his whole life was about competition. It was about being number one. The, the number one Jew in all of Judaism. He wanted to be thought of that way. But Paul, when he encountered Christ, his whole life changed. And he became a very humble man. And he begins to explain life in the kingdom of God to some friends of his in a town called Ephesus. Listen to how he describes that life. He says, therefore, Ephesians 5, therefore, be imitators of God as what? As beloved children. As, as little beloved, little children. And he goes on to say, and walk in love the way they do as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Friends, we become humble, really humble, when we get in the presence of God. That's when we become humble. Jesus was the most humble man who ever lived. He came, God in the flesh, he took on flesh, he left heaven, humbled himself. You, you read that together in responsive reading earlier today. He humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. You spoke those words. That's the humility of Jesus because he lived always in the presence of his father. And when you and I live in the presence of God, his majesty will evoke humility. We will want to experience humility. We will, we will take the light in the depths of who he has made us to be. And we'll quit trying to play the substitute game. Quit trying to play the one-up game. But, but here's the deal. Sometimes in our efforts to try to avoid that humbling, we'll try playing the substitute game. Sometimes people even try to substitute church and positions in church, serving in church. Try to substitute that for the presence of God. Friends, that is destructive. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't pursue serving one another in the kingdom of God through the ministries of the church. But I'm just saying it's a matter of motivation of the heart. It's what got the disciples in trouble here. See, the reality, you can, you can go to church, you can serve in church your whole life. And never start imitating God as a little child. Never start actually imitating God. Never having the kind of love that, Jesus, that Paul wrote about Jesus having. The kind of love that would sacrifice for others. The kind of love that would give of itself. That's why this is so beautiful and perplexing at the same time. Little children are. They're beautiful and perplexing. And it's something that the Lord wants us to see. And I believe by his spirit, he wants to place in each of us. And that is a spirit that becomes unimpressed about ourselves. That we just are, are, are much more, no, much less impressed with self day after day. Instead of walking around thinking, <laughs> really got it going on. We walk away from that. We see that it, it just, it, it, it destroys our own souls. Paul writes about this later to the church at Rome. He gives it in the form of a warning even. He says, I warn everyone among you not to estimate and think of himself more highly than he ought. Not to have an exaggerated opinion 
of his own importance. In other words, not measuring yourself against the standards of the world, but instead finding yourself saying, Lord, I just want to be with you. I just want to be content with who you've created me to be. So, Lord, whatever, whatever hand you deal me in this life, I'll trust you in it. I'll walk with you in it. No matter what, I'm going to humbly walk with you. Because that's what little children do with their mommies and their daddies. They just humbly walk. Humbly walk wherever, wherever they're led. See, it's powerful when you start to see that. When you see what Jesus is doing here. When you start to see that maybe the kids you're raising or if you're grandparents, the, the grandkids you're getting to be in their lives or if you serve in River Kids here, the, the kids that you're, you know, you're seeking to serve, we need to understand that yes, God has given them to us so that we could give something to them, but also so that we could get something from them. We could see the beauty and the simplicity of life in the kingdom of God. And then there's one last point. One last point on this pursuit of greatness in the kingdom of God that Jesus makes. It's found in verse 5. Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives. And what Jesus is talking about here is if we want to experience great life in the kingdom of God, if we want to, 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 to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant, if we want to know what greatness is in the kingdom of God is, Greatness is this, we receive others for Jesus. Now, I, I love this. Jesus has said, whoever humbles himself like this little child, greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever receives one of these little ones in my name receives me. Friends, we, we need to be receiving others for Jesus. It's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, I don't believe that Jesus is only talking about chronological age of children here when he says one of these little ones. I think some of these little ones could be little in faith but big in body, okay? It could be somebody, you know, that's, that, that's fully grown. He's talking about people here who've yet to kind of turn from their own way, but they're starting. They're starting to turn towards him, and I believe that for each one of us who are followers of Jesus, that part of that call that God has on our lives is that we would receive people who are making that turn. Now, here's what's going to fight against this. Here's what we all want. We want to receive those people who have done this. They have fully turned. They're fully heading in the direction that you and I think are the right direction. But here's how most turning actually starts, and my guess is true of you and me too. I know it is for me. It's like this. That's how most of us turn towards Jesus and the things of his kingdom. For most of us, it's not this great big turn where that doesn't fall back. It's not this immediate. For most of us, God is constantly moving us. And what I believe Jesus is saying is when you receive someone who is turning, even a little bit at a time, you're receiving me. Because that's the way I received you. Do you know that's what the scripture tells us? Romans chapter 15 God's word says, accept one another then just as who? Just as Christ accepted you. That same way, in those little turns. Jesus accepted you in your little turns. Not because you got it right all the way the first time. He received you a little bit at a time. Now, he brought you into his kingdom at one moment. But he's receiving you to the fullness of his kingdom a little bit at a time. Now, friends, each one of us, each of us have spheres of influence, people that God has given us relationships with, people who may be far away from him but close to us. And it may be people where you work. It may be people in the neighborhood where you live. It may be extended family. It may be where you educate or where you recreate. It may be in your hobbies. But I just want to encourage you here. Jesus said if you will receive some of those, you'll receive me. See, the gospel can run through all those relationships. God has wonderful plans for that. And I, I, here's, here's something I'm absolutely certain about. 
Every one of us in here who came to Christ, came to Christ because somebody else who Christ had influenced invited you to come, to come to to know Jesus. Somebody that you knew started following Jesus in some way, someday, and they eventually impacted your life, and they drew you near to Jesus. And friends, in every generation, God continues to look for people People in his kingdom who will come in contact with the lives of other people who will receive them even in their little turns. And that includes other believers. Notice this in Romans 14. Paul writes, except other believers who are weak in faith, don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. Paul's saying, just bring them back. We have brothers and sisters who have become weak in their faith and they've gone wayward. They've, they've, they've fallen into sin. And they start their turn back. You know what the Bible says? Receive them. Right where they're at, receive them in that little turn back. Draw them in. See, Jesus is reminding us, don't, don't focus on arguing with them. Receive them. See, Jesus reminds me, he does this so we don't forget about the kingdom to come as a humble one. To live in in such a way, you know, that I don't repel others, but I receive others. And don't you just love that word receive? It's such a tender word. Such an intimate word. It didn't say, you know, go knock them over the head. It didn't say rip them out of their circumstances. It just said receive them. And I believe that every single day, that God has put people in your life and my life that we're there for the purpose of receiving them in the name of Jesus for Jesus. And friends, as we do, what Jesus says is you receive more of him, more of his life, more of his joy, more of his power, even just in receiving them in their little turns, turning away from something that's been holding them back. You know, as God's kids, we should just We should receive that slightest change with great joy and celebration. Just great joy and celebration. Now, remember, that turn sometimes takes a long time. It can take a really long time. But every time we receive someone in that turning, the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, that we are receiving him in a beautiful way. And as Christ followers, we... We, we want that. We want, we want to experience more uh, of God in that way. So we serve. If we're going to serve God, you know who we got to serve? We got to serve people. If we're going to love God, we got to love people. The greatest commandment, Matthew 22. Jumped over a few more chapters in, in Matthew. Greatest commandment, Jesus said, was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've got to love God and love people. And if you're going to love God, you're going to love people. You're going to receive them in that love. And Jesus said, you'll experience me every time you receive one. Now, if, if you're here today, maybe in the building or if you're here, you know, online, this is about turning, about being converted. And it, it means maybe for the very first time. Coming to that place for the very first time where you realize that what Jesus did on the cross is for you. Humbling yourself enough to admit, I need a Savior. I can't save myself. I'm I'm a sinner separated from God, and I need to be turned to believe that. I need to be turned to believe that I can't save myself, that I need a Savior. Jesus says anyone who will call on his name that way he will, he will save. He'll put you on a new direction, a, a, a new path. And I just want to say to you, if you're here in the room or if you're online, that this church, this family of faith, we want to receive you. We, we, we're ready to welcome you as part of our family to help you follow Jesus, to experience life in the kingdom of God. Most of us here have already made that decision. Most of us in this room at one day, at one time, said yes to that call to turn. To turn from that life that says it's all about jockeying for position. It's all about, you know, getting ahead in this life. 
to saying, Jesus, I'm going to trust you with my life. I'm going to walk with you. And what God is calling most of us into is to be more active and intentional at receiving others. And I think that's the challenge for most of us today, is that we'll see our lives centered on that. And here's what Jesus says to his disciples that day. If you'll humble yourself, be like a child, get out of that competitive business, if you'll jettison that whole jockeying thing, if you'll learn from the beauty of little children, that rhythm of life, and if you'll receive others in my name, man, I'll receive you. That's the word of God for his people today. Let's pray. Father, we come in your beautiful name, coming to you because we are made able by the sacrifice of your son Jesus. So Jesus, we, we thank you. We just come to thank you and praise you in these moments for your goodness and your mercy and your grace. And we come saying that we believe that greatness is not achieved by the ways of the world, but by humbling ourselves in your presence. Humbling ourselves, God, in your greatness. Humbling ourselves like a little child choosing to no longer be caught up in pursuing that whole competition, jockeying for position in the world, giving up on thinking that our identity is somehow rooted in that instead of in you, oh God. Seeing the beauty of simplicity in your kingdom and life in your kingdom through the eyes of a child. So Lord, we come. Maybe, maybe today is that day where for the very first time you're just going to cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, I come for the very first time to give my life to you. I want to step into your kingdom. I, I want your kingdom, God. I don't, the, the kingdoms of this world have killed me. And I want life in you. Most of us, what we need to do again today is, is turn again. Be converted a little more to life in the kingdom as Jesus describes it. To follow him with greater conviction than we did yesterday so that we could receive him, more of him, more of life in him in the here and now. So Jesus, we just want to come to say we love you. We want to worship you now. We want to thank you for who you are because we do love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.